This morning we will be continuing in Isaiah. But I want to start with just sort of a fun thing. Have you guys heard of CareerBuilder.com? CareerBuilder does surveys every year, and they, they take surveys of, of all kinds of employment-related things. But one of the things they take surveys of is actual excuses bosses have heard for employees not showing up. So these are, and, and then they compile them to some of the more humorous ones. And um, now please don't take this as a list of ideas. This is not, that's not what we're encouraging. This is a list of just interesting excuses. Employee just put a casserole in the oven was one of them. Um, employee had been at the casino all weekend and still had money left to play with on Monday morning. I'm just not sure that's a, a good, good reason. Employee got stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store and couldn't get out. <laughs> Employee accidentally got on a plane. <laughs> to Hawaii? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> flat tire, that one you expect, except the reason the employee gave um, was that the worker claimed the ozone in the air flattened his tires so he couldn't drive there. At least come up with reasonable ones. Um, one employee ditched work because they found a spider in their home and told their boss they were experiencing traumatic stress as a result. <laughs> um, one of my favorites, an employee had to attend the funeral of his wife co- wife's cousin's pet because he was an uncle and a pallbearer. <laughs> Did you hear the word pet? Yeah, we have all kinds of things. One employee was blocked in by police raiding her home. I'm not sure you admit that any, anyway. Um, all, all kinds of things. But we have all kinds of excuses for missing work. Now, you can say, well, that's because I don't really want to go to work. We're looking for ways off, especially on snow days when there's all kinds of snow in the local mountains. And we're missing a lot of people this morning. Hmm. No. We have people sick and away at funerals and the college group is away at retreat. And so there's a lot of reasons to not be here. But think, think for a minute this morning, if we think about God's church and what God is doing in his church and being involved and committed to God's work, we also can come up with all kinds of excuses, right? What kinds of things can keep us from being committed to God's work or, or entering a ministry or being willing to put ourselves out for a ministry? This is where you can talk a little bit. What are some th- reasons we, we stay out of ministry or stay out of doing God's work? Small children, okay? Fear of failure. There was another one that I missed. Work, okay? Work, small children, fear of failure. Now, now, money, depending on if the ministry takes money. Now, some excuses are reasonable, like the people that are away today for a funeral or a retreat or sometimes stages of life like small children or work may keep us out of things. But is fear of failure a good reason to not be involved in God's work? And, and so I'm not, not, I'm not picking on you because I know you agree with me. <laughs> um, is resources. Now, sometimes that could be a valid excuse, sometimes not. Um, one, one list that I saw as well was talking about why people stop going to church. But they reworded the list in terms of a ball game or sports. Whenever I go to a game, they ask for money. The other fans don't care about me. The seats are too hard. Well, we don't have that one. Coach never visits me. The referee makes calls I don't agree with. Some of the games go into overtime. Never. (laughs) And they were showing how 
if we take the same standard sometimes we use for church and God's people and being involved in what God is doing and apply it to other areas of life, it's sort of ludicrous, sort of crazy. But we, we are challenged because we have all these reasons and all these things that keep us from God's work and keep us from being a family. And I would say that one of the reasons why this is different from the rest of life is because there is spiritual warfare and Satan actively trying to keep us from being a church family and trying to keep you out of doing God's work and trying to keep you out of studying God's word and worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, as we we head to Isaiah 49, you may wonder what all this has to do with the text. And we're going to take two chapters and and move them through them pretty quickly. I'll just say I'm not going to cover everything in the two chapters. But I want us to see the overall view of where these chapters are moving, sort of the stream and the argument that's happening here. Because Isaiah now is going to present to us Christ. He's going to present to us the servant and what the servant is doing and that the servant wants to be part of it But in the middle of it, he's going to challenge Israel with the excuses that they use to not be part of it. See how it all ties in? And so this morning, my goal is that we we just love reading about our Savior. We love reading about the Messiah. And at the same time, we're challenged to not take it lightly, to not take his work lightly, to be part of what he's doing. You know, by, by way of background, we, we just studied chapters 40 to 48, which I called the Babylon Chronicles. And it was written to a people in exile in Babylon to give them hope. In fact, in chapter 40, verse 1, it says, I'm writing now to bring comfort to my people. And for the first nine chapters, 40 to 48, it was talking about comfort of physical deliverance from Babylon. Cyrus is going to come. Cyrus is going to let you return to Israel. He's going to let you rebuild Jerusalem. It's coming. A physical salvation is coming. But today in chapter 49, we switch gears. And 49 to 55 are talking about a different captivity. Cyrus is never mentioned in these chapters. Babylon is never mentioned in these chapters. And the servant, the Messiah, is introduced Because the captivity that he's going to deal with is the captivity of sin and a spiritual captivity. See, we don't just have to be rescued physically. That's easy. Being rescued spiritually and having our hearts cleansed from all sin and purified and brought near to God, that's a miracle. And that's the miracle that the servant provides. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. We're actually going to pick up the last verse in, in 48 um, as we, we head into this section. But so actually look at Isaiah 48 verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair around you. Grab that, follow along as we're going to study these two chapters and, and figure out where Isaiah is going with this. It's, he's a little bit cryptic because I think he's introducing a new topic to the people and, and sort of hiding little gems and little nuggets because he doesn't come out and say who the servant is. But he's going to have them discover it. But in Isaiah 48, verse 22, it ends the, the Babylon Chronicles before we get to the servant songs with, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace for the Lord, says, or, says the Lord, for the wicked. And he sets up after they've been redeemed that there still is a spiritual problem. It's a, a little verse that says, I still haven't dealt with your wickedness. And you still won't have peace while you're in wickedness. And this sets up the next movie. 
49 through 55. For those of you Star Wars fans, and, and I love Star Wars, this is the end of episode two with Han Solo in, crypt, in kryptonite. Okay, not kryptonite. Carbonite, thank you. Sorry, in the original order. Episode five. I pretend the prequels don't exist. Um, (laughs) So episode five, Empire Strikes Back. Han Solo's in Carbonite. And that's how the movie ends. Which is why episode five is the worst of all of them. And and, and (laughs) some of you are like, what? I just offended most of the Star Wars fans in the room. (laughs) But it ends with one of the favorite characters, life you think is over. Now, you know that there's another movie coming, and you know it's going to be okay, but that setup is important for episode 6, right? It's huge. That's what ch- verse 22 is doing. It, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's the Han Solo verse, because that's sacrilegious, but it's, that, that helps us understand he ends this one section by saying, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And the reader is left with, okay, what do we do now? That's not very hopeful. And that sets up the beauty of chapters 49 through 55 because God is going to say why there's hope. He's going to tell them what is coming. And what He's going to do is He's going to introduce Jesus on the scene. Now, we have to understand as we read about Jesus here, they didn't know about Jesus. They are still expecting Israel to be the servant that is restored and and how God works. But God, as we saw in chapter 42 that Pastor Andrew taught on, God is saying, Israel, I love you, you're my people, but you didn't fulfill what I asked you to as a servant. So I'm going to bring a perfect servant that is going to fulfill what you couldn't. And Isaiah 49 is where he really gets into it and it's introduced. In fact, you could take the first seven verses of 49 and put them in red letter if you wanted in your Bible. Now, they wouldn't have known that, but we do looking back. And so it's important as we read this to to read this in light of the New Testament. We could understand that they wouldn't have understood quite who this is talking about. But for us, we do. We know that this is talking about our Lord and Savior. And so for us, this should be reading through and we're seeing, oh, Jesus fulfilled that or, oh, that Jesus did this or Jesus did this. And my goal, my hope this morning is we get excited about that. There's a joy to that. Like in, back to a movie reference, like any of the movies you see, when you see a prequel and you see like the origins of your favorite character, you're like, oh, that's how it started. That's what I want us to be excited about as we come to Isaiah. And so we come to Isaiah 49 and this is the second servant song. In Isaiah 42, that was the first servant song. But when we say servant songs, it's a, it's a way of referring to these four times where Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, is talked about in really song form or poetic form. But as we look at these first 13 verses, the setup here is the servant Messiah is coming and he will establish his kingdom. The servant Messiah is coming and he will establish his kingdom. And like I said, for us, we know about Jesus and we're excited about it. For them, this is brand new. This is, wow, God is doing something different. And so these 13 verses really answer the question for them. How is God going to act from here forward? What is he doing? 
And so we come to some of these, and, and I want to read these verses, and we'll, we'll sort of pick them apart as we come and look for things that describe Jesus. Listen to me, O coastlands, in verse 1, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And as we go through these verses, it's just rich with things. You can take every phrase. It starts by reminding us and reminding them that the Messiah isn't just for Israel. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. Later, he's going to say the Messiah comes to be a light to the nations. This was profound, profound for them that the Messiah would come for all of us. Praise God, Jews and Gentiles alike. Then he says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And this is Jesus talking. This is the Messiah talking. And he says, Yahweh called me from the womb. And he's talking about the sovereignty of Yahweh, that this was his plan from the beginning. He didn't just pick a man when he was 30 and say, oh, let's, let's have him die on the cross. Woo, salvation. No, his plan from the beginning was God incarnate in human form. And he sent his son according to plan, at just the right time, at just the right moment, to just the right person in just the right place. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. In verse 2, it goes on to talk about the servant. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And this verse is talking about the power of the servant. And the power will be his word, his mouth like a sharp sword. And think in the New Testament where we see these. We see the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Jesus riding on the horse in Revelation, what does he have coming out of his mouth? Sword. In John 1, verse 1, what is Jesus called? The Word. These are all. These are just little little Easter eggs that are are just beginning to tell them what the Messiah is going to be like. His Word will be the very Word of God. Man, I love seeing these connections. It's going to be a sharp sword. It'll be effective. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He'll be protected by God. He made me a polished arrow. Again, the effectiveness of of Jesus's work, of the Messiah's work. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. This is a, a challenging verse because we can say, okay, you just said it was Jesus, but that says it's Israel. And we talked about this a little bit. Pastor Andrew talked about this in 42, that Israel is often used in a couple of different ways, sometimes in the collective sense of a nation, sometimes of an individual. And so we have to say, okay, so is he talking about Israel here or is he talking about a servant, a person? And the answer actually comes a little bit later in the text because in 5 and 6, he says the servant will restore Israel. The servant, this Israel, will redeem the other Israel. And so we know it can't be the nation. Again, this is, this is Jesus who's talking. You are my servant, Israel. The Israel as it should have been. And you will perfectly fulfill what I've asked. He goes on in in verse 4, But I said, and again, think in terms of the Messiah, think in terms of Jesus speaking. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And this is already prophecy 
that people won't respond all that great to Jesus at times. He's the servant. He's come to, to bring light to the nations, but they won't always respond. In fact, we know that they tried to kill Jesus on a number of occasions for speaking truth. Even his disciples. How many times did Jesus say, don't you get it? Okay, maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He said things like, oh, ye of little faith. Don't you see? In Luke 9, 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear you? In Mark 8, 21, He said to them, Do you not yet understand? In John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? John 16.32 Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And that verse in John 16.32 mirrors verse 4 in our text. It's the fulfillment of verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is from the Lord. My recompense is is from God. And the prophecy here for the servant is, yes, people won't understand. People will ridicule you, but God will use what you do for His glory, for His purposes. He knows. He causes the fruit. And so in this, we see a confidence in God as Jesus is saying, yes, this is going to happen, but my right is with Yahweh. He is the one that will work. We go on to read in verse 5 the content of the call for 5 through 7. And now the Lord, or Yahweh, says, He who formed me from the womb, and this isn't what he said, this is still a description of Yahweh. And in verse 6, we get to what he, the quotes of what he said. But, and now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. And we see that Jesus is to bring people back to God. The Messiah will redeem and bring people back. In verse 6, he being Yahweh says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And we see there again, He's coming to save Israel and us. So, so we read this and we may read, well, yeah, we know all that. that that's all, all straightforward and direct. But this is the first time they're really hearing about the Messiah. This ver- Passages like this are why they expected a Messiah when Jesus came on the scene. This is part of the storyline. And God is encouraging them by saying, My servant is coming. He's going to be a light to the nations. He's going to reach the world with forgiveness of sins. Verse 7, Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And again, there's prophecy here that this, and and they missed this part of it, but that this, this won't be a military coup or it won't be a a powerful leader in the terms of of earthly power, 
but he's going to be despised. He's going to be abhorred, the servant of rulers. We're going to see this in in the, the third section today. But Jesus knew that he would be despised. He knew that people wouldn't respond. He knew that ministry would be challenging. And he still came. And he still did it because he loves us. The end of seven gives the hope of what God is doing. The, the end product. Kings shall see and arise. Princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. And so God says, yes, you'll be despised. We know that that happened on the cross. That he was rejected. That he was killed. But in the end, all will bow. All will bow. We've talked about that a number of times. And God is just peeling back the curtains, saying, this is my plan. It won't be as you expected. I'm going to send my servant. Yeah, people aren't going to understand him or respond. He's going to be despised. He'll even be killed. But in the end, he will bring people back to me by doing that. Oh, what a faithful Savior. What a faithful Savior. In 8 through 13, the second half of, of this servant song, we see the work of the servant. What's he going to do? And, and his work, if I had to sum it up, is to establish the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, when the Messiah came, he was bringing the kingdom of God here. Now we know that it, it, it has come in two parts. The already has come, where Jesus came and he, offered, he, he died for our sins, he offers forgiveness for sins, but we're still waiting for the second half, Right? When we're in glory with Jesus, when sin is no more, when there is no more pain or tears, and we live in the very presence of God, that's the, that's the not yet part of the kingdom. Already we have forgiveness of sins, not yet. We're still waiting for eternity with God. That's the kingdom that is being referred to here of what's coming. And again, this was huge because they expected an earthly kingdom in Israel of Jews, and this is for all people a heavenly kingdom with God. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, in verse 8, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. And right there in verse 8, there's there's a lot of key words there that give us insight that he's talking about his future kingdom. The time of favor that was often used of either the year of Jubilee, but then later in Isaiah and in the New Testament, that was used of the kingdom of God being inaugurated here on earth, being brought in. It was a messianic term. And so when they saw in a time of favor, we think, oh, that's a good, good day. For them, the Messiah is doing something. Now again, teaching, thinking through prophecy, remember the mountain range we put up? And with prophecy, you can see this mountain range and this mountain range and this mountain range. You have no idea the gaps in between. They sort of all look together. We see that here because this is fulfilled in a variety of different ways. How has God's kingdom come for them? One was being restored from Babylon, a physical restoration to the land. The next mountain range is Jesus coming, providing forgiveness for sins. The final mountain range where these words are used is the millennium and the, the ultimate kingdom with Christ. All are true. They are all part of the fulfillment of this. Remember Isaiah, or Luke chapter 4, when Jesus came into the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, 
And they said, hey, why don't you read from the scroll Isaiah? Remember this? And he opens up Isaiah, and he actually reads from Isaiah 61, which quotes part of this verse that we just read in Isaiah 49.8. And, and so, so Jesus opens it up. He unrolls the scroll. He chooses the place and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Catch that phrase? I, I, know, I know we're getting a little academic here, but when you see a phrase that's used over and over, pay attention to it. It's huge. And so Jesus reads, to proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor. They all knew that's when God's doing something special. That's when the Messiah comes. And he rolled up the scroll. This is in Luke. This is Jesus. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And by their custom, whoever read would give a short little sermon or sermonette on, on what they had just read. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, waiting for him to talk. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, when you put all the pieces together, he's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting from the servant psalm and Isaiah 61 and saying, today the kingdom of God starts. I'm bringing it in. This is exciting. This is part of God's plan to save people from all nations to His kingdom. And that's why they were so angry at Him. Because He was claiming to be the Messiah. 2 Corinthians 6, for He says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Village, we're in the favorable time. We're living as part of God's kingdom. If we're believers, we're part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, we're part of the work of God. And this is that favorable time that the servant is saying is here. We go on, verses 9-13. through 13. He goes on to describe what's going to happen with the kingdom of God. Prisoners will come out. Those that are in darkness appear. They'll feed along the ways, speaking of God's provision for them. And you can read the, the rest of 8 through 13, but jump down to 12. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene, which is probably down near Egypt to the south. What he's saying is people are going to come from all over the world. This isn't just for Israel. The kingdom of God is for everyone, you and I included. And then the, the response in 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt. O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For Yahweh has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. See, chapter 40, trying to tie all the pieces in for us, chapter 40 started by saying, I am writing to comfort my people. Now in 49.13, He says, this is how you're actually comforted through Jesus Christ through the Messiah. This was my plan. It's not about Cyrus. It's not about Babylon. It's not about getting your, your old house back. It's about a Messiah coming and bringing salvation. And so there's praise here for that ultimate comfort that can only come from God. 
comfort for the afflicted, the spiritually destitute, the spiritually poor. And it reminds us that God has compassion and what He does is comfort. That's a message we need to remember every day. God has compassion and He comforts. Even now for His children. And He does that through Jesus Christ. And so 1 through 13, as we go through it, I, I, I hope that you just saw glimpses of Christ. That's why we read a lot of, of stuff from the New Testament. Glimpses of Christ because this was the preview. The trailer, if we're still going with a, with a, a movie motif. And so you would expect from here that people would be all excited and praising God. And, okay, the servant's coming. Let's be part of what he's doing. He's bringing salvation. He's bringing all the peoples together. He's, he's bringing provision and, and restoration. And so we get to 49, the very next verse, verse 14, where you expect it to say, and the people got excited and joined in what God was doing. But read verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. What? He just spent 13 verses giving the best news ever. The greatest story that the Messiah is coming. The servant is coming. And their response is, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And we see from verse 14 all the way to to the next chapter, verse 3, a series of excuses to not follow the servant. A series of complaints as to why they can't be part of what he's doing or shouldn't be part of what he's doing. And what Isaiah is doing here, he's setting up a comparison between the heart of the people and the heart of the servant. The heart of the people and the heart of the servant. And so in the rest of chapter 50, he's going to go into the heart of the servant. And at the end of 50, and I'll just give you a heads up now, at the end of the 50, he's going to, of chapter 50, he's going to say, choose which one you want to be part of. Choose which one you want to be like. And it starts here in, in verse 14. And so let's go through some of these excuses. The first excuse in your notes, God has forgotten us. God has forgotten us. We read 14, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. And that's the excuse. And the next six, seven verses are all of God answering that excuse. And his answer in verse 15 sort of has this idea of, of surprise or are you serious? He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And we see God comparing Himself to a nursing mom. A tender mom. And He says, if you think I've forgotten you, think of moms and their kids. And He goes so far to say, it's easier for a mom to forget about her child than it is for me to forget about you. Now moms, do you forget about your child? Do you ever wake up and say, I don't have kids? Honestly. I mean, yeah, sometimes you say that, but... um, no, you know you have kids, right? And, and if you're a nursing mom, you know every couple hours you have kids. You, you can't get away from it, right? That's the illustration. He's this tender care. And he's saying, that's how much I care for you. That's how much I care for you. These excuses, by the way, they read like things that I hear, that you and I think sometimes. 
We get in situations and we think God has forgotten us or at least forgotten our situation. And so when we read this, we need to read that he has compassion on us like a mom with her child. He will never forget us. In verse 16, he goes on. He's going to just pound this in because God does not like to be told he forgot, he's forgotten you and doesn't care about you. In verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And, and it's this idea that he, it's always top of mind for him. The walls probably are what he had envisioned for, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He's like, I have this plan for you. I love you. I care about you. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. I've already taken care of the people that destroyed you. And you say I don't care? I think this excuse is just incredibly insulting to God. And, and moms and dads, you, you know from experience when your child looks at you and says, you just don't love me because they didn't get the video game they wanted. And you're saying, come and eat at my table and sleep under my roof. And I know how that feels. Imagine when we say to God, you've forgotten me. I can't be part of what you're doing because I don't even think you care. Oh, guys, God cares more than we can ever know. And if you're sitting here today and you've never accepted Christ and you've never turned to Him because you're not sure He cares, let me reassure you, He loves you more than any other person ever will. He loves you enough to die on the cross for you and to take the penalty for your sin on Himself. He goes on to just keep pounding this in. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, you shall put them all on as an ornament. He's saying that, that people are coming from every nation. He is blessing Israel. You'll bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely it'll be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. And he's saying, you're, you're going to get to a point where you're going to say this little Israel, it's not big enough for all the blessings God has given us, for all the people God has given us. You think I don't care? I've already saved you. I've already brought you into your land. And I'm restoring you. Don't question my care. I see a little passion from God here. And rightfully so. In verse 21, we see really the next, the next complaint or the next hesitancy of joining in God, following. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? He's talking about those blessings and he's, he's saying you'll see the blessings and and instead of thanking me for the blessings, you say, how did this happen? I, I can't do this. You see the promises. You're like, well, well, I can't accomplish that. And you see that in words like bereaved, which means death of children or a husband. Barren, there's infertility there. Exiled and put away, left alone. So we have infertility, loss of children, and a husband's gone. Okay, that's why they're saying this can't happen. We, we, you can't bless us with more kids. And he's talking about blessings of, of children here in a, a great nation. 
But the excuse is we can't do this. This isn't possible. And in verse 22 and 23, we see God's answer. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the people. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And he's using poetic language here to say, I am the one that's going to accomplish my work. I will bring the nations bowing before you because they'll be bowing to my servant. I will be the one that replenishes your people. You can't do this? That's okay. God sort of wants us to get to that place to where we recognize He can do it. Just a a fun note in the text, if you look at verse 22, but if you look at 22 and on, wherever you say, thus says the Lord God, do you see God in all caps there? So what does it mean when they're in all caps? Yahweh, right? And usually we see that with Lord. In this case, it's not on Lord because the title used four times in this section is thus says Lord Yahweh or Adonai Yahweh. And it's a term that represents sovereign God or God Almighty. And God here is, is pounding into them, you have all these excuses, but I'm in charge. See, when we make excuses for not being part of what God's doing, we really are challenging His sovereignty. And say, you're not in charge. My circumstances are greater than my God. And by His very title, He is saying, I am Lord God. I am sovereign God above all things, above all people, above all situations. Trust me. The first excuse was God has forgotten us. And God says, I haven't forgotten you. I care about you more than ever. Their second excuse is we can't do this. And God says, that's okay. It's not up to you. It's me. Verse 24, we see the next excuse. The job is too big. The job is too big. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who will contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. I'll explain that. Then all flesh shall be known that I am Yahweh, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And and they're concerned that the task is too big. The nations that have them under subjection are too mighty. They're in too much captivity. If we think of the sin issue, I can't get out from under my own sin. And God's like, nothing's too big for me. Nothing's too big. And, and, and we do the same thing when we look at God's work and we look at, at, at taking a step of faith. Maybe God's calling you to do something in the church or your neighborhood or whatever. We, we look at these steps of faith and one of our objections is that's too big. Not for your God. God loves it when we take on God-sized tasks that He's called us to. Because then I can't come back and say, look what I did. I have to say, look at what the Lord God did. And in each of these excuses, he reaffirms his name. 
that I am the Lord God. And he reaffirms that he wants people to know that he's their Savior, their Redeemer, their Mighty One. When I said, when I said oppressors eat their own flesh, I said I explained that. <laughs> and they shall be drunk with their own blood. That was typical language to say they're the ones that will be under siege. And he's using imagery of a city surrounded with no more food, so you ended up resorting to cannibalism, with no more water, so you're willing to drink blood. And he's using it to illustrate how no one is too mighty for God. He says, I'll, I'll put them under siege. I'll take care of them. Finally, we come to chapter 50, verses 1 through 3, and the last excuse in this text. And I'm not saying these are all the excuses we use. These were the excuses Israel was using. And in 50, this is sort of an implied excuse. Most of the commentators think that God is answering another excuse, but he doesn't say what it is because it says, thus says Yahweh. And the excuse is, God has disciplined me permanently. It's really his fault I can't be a servant. I'm disqualified because of my past. God's put me out. He won't ever take me back in. For someone coming to Christ, it's saying, I've sinned too much and God can't handle it. Oh, yes, He can. In ministry, it's saying, you know, I've blown it in my past, so I'm not qualified for ministry. Oh, that's the beauty of forgiveness. It's the beauty of restoration. And we see in verses 1 through 3 there, we see God's answer. Thus says Yahweh, Where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And, and he's bringing up two common things. He's bringing up divorce and says, did, did I give you a certificate of divorce? Show me if I did. Did I make this permanent? And, and on the other one is, do I owe so much that I had to sell you into slavery? Well, God doesn't owe anything. And so he's saying, this wasn't me permanently dis- disavowing you. This was something else. And he answers it in verse 1, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why didn't you answer me, he's saying? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? And, and, he, and he's taking the situation. He's dealing with discipline. And sometimes when we're disciplined, we can be so down on ourselves and, and we can think that we're disqualified from God ever using us. But discipline means God is correcting His own. He, he's, he's directing His own. He's loving His own kids. When you discipline your kids, you're not kicking them out of your family. That's a whole different discipline. You're trying to correct a behavior so that they will be part of your family. And that's what God is trying to say. I disciplined you, but I can... I can still redeem. I can still deliver. And he uses an example here from the Exodus. Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. It's a reference to the first plague in Egypt. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. A reference to the ninth plague of Egypt. And so he he sort of covers one through nine. He leaves the, the death of the firstborn as a separate one. But he covers plagues one through nine and said, I've brought you out before. I've rescued you from slavery before. 
don't ever doubt that I can redeem you to myself. And so for Israel, they had excuses to not follow God. They thought God had forgotten them. They looked at what they were asked to do and said, we can't do this. They thought the job was too big, the nations around them too mighty, and they thought God had rejected them permanently and couldn't redeem them. So instead of getting excited about what God was doing, they complained and wanted to quit. You know, I have letter E there. You can insert our own excuses there. Why don't we get involved in what God is doing? Why don't we commit to God's work? What keeps us from stepping out into ministry? And our, our excuses may be some of the same. We can have a whole variety of different excuses. Maybe I just don't have time to be part of what God's doing to build His kingdom. Because I have a whole lot of other things that are more important. Maybe I am afraid of failure. And if I put myself out, I might not have enough energy to make it happen or enough skill to accomplish it. Well, that was one of their objections. What is keeping you, if you don't know God, from coming to God? And if you do, what keeps you from serving Him wholeheartedly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Sometimes I hear excuses for ministry like, that's just too early. I can't get up that early. Say that to your boss Monday through Friday. And then you'll have a lot of vacation time. Sometimes I hear excuses like, I just don't think that's valuable. And we're putting ourselves into a position of evaluating what God's doing instead of God. Now, I'm not saying there's not valid reasons, and I'm not saying everybody has to do everything. But the question, the bottom line question is, am I actively participating in the kingdom of God, in the family of God? That's the bottom line. Everyone here can't do everything here. But am I actively participating in the family of God? Because if I'm not, I'm making excuses that are probably not from God. That's the example of Israel. I'm going to end in the next few minutes with the last verses of chapter 50, 4 through 11, because now we get the example of the servant. And this is the servant song, the third servant song, servant song number three. Without excuses, the servant shows us perfect obedience, even when it's hard. And I would underline even when it's hard, especially in our day and age, we, 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 I'm not even going to get into snowflakes and everything that's happening, but we don't like doing what's hard. And I'm not just accusing the younger generation. We don't like doing what's hard. So let's look at the example of Christ. Each of these verses is a description of the servant. The first, the servant is a disciple. He's learning and listening. We might think that's weird applied to Jesus, but he's providing a model, an example for us. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary 
Morning by morning he awakes. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. And the word for taught there is the word that sometimes in the Old Testament used of disciple. Someone sitting under the tutelage of someone else. And Jesus, the Messiah, is saying, I was taught. I listened. I'm a disciple. I learned. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Jesus said I need to spend time with God every morning and learn from God every morning. If Jesus spent time with God every day, chances are we need to as well. Right? And he's providing an example. The servant learns and listens. He's a disciple. And he's highlighting his his submission to Yahweh in this section. He goes on in verses 5 and 6. And we see the suffering, submissive servant. The Lord God, or Adonai Yahweh, has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Do you see images of Jesus here? As He goes to the cross, as He's spit on, pulling out the beard, was, was a sign of, of humiliation. And I read these two verses and I think, not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane prays to the Father and submits his will to hard, suffering work of the kingdom. He gave his back that references the flogging. He is willing to suffer to be God's servant, to do the hard things. So the picture of Jesus is a disciple learning and listening. The picture is a suffering and submissive servant to a sovereign God. Then in verses 7 and 8, we have the picture of the trusting, confident servant. But the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. I love that imagery. Because Jesus is saying, I trust my Father. I trust God. He's going to help me even through this disgrace. And I will set my face like flint. And that refers to resolve. I will serve God. I will do this. I don't care what happens. I don't care how hard it is. I will move forward. That's the example of Christ. A little different from the excuses we just heard. Oh, God's forgotten me. I don't know if I'm strong enough. The trusting, confident servant. In fact, in Luke 9, 51, a description of Jesus, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And actually, that's, that phrase is used several times. I'd never noticed that phrase before. He set his face to follow through with God's plan. I think it's a reference to Isaiah. I have set my face like a flint. In verse 9, we see the persevering servant. The persevering servant. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In the end, he's saying, my trust in God, my being part of what God is doing, my, my being his servant is going to outlast everyone else. It will persevere. 
because of God's strength and because it's God's work. His work outlasts. You know, one of the excuses we sometimes have for ministry is, I'm just tired of that ministry. We've been doing it a long time. Oh, God's work is in the perseverance. It's in the perseverance. Don't lose heart for things like Second Harvest and Awana and things that, yeah, we may get tired of because it's every month or every week. Don't lose heart because the servant outlasts because of the the strength of God. I'm also convinced that ministry mostly happens in the long term. Good ministry doesn't happen in the one-shot glory deal. Good ministry happens week by week in the trenches of persevering. Don't lose heart if you're an Awana leader. I know what time of year it is. I know it's hard. Don't lose heart of coming to Second Harvest. Those things are making huge differences and inroads in the kingdom. Persevere as the servant does. And we get to the final choice, verses 10 and 11. And this is where Isaiah wraps up the list of excuses and the picture of the servant. And in verse 10, he talks about the servant. In 11, he talks about the excuses. Verse 10, Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And he's using it as a call to this example of the servant. Follow this. Be confident and trusting in God. Be persevering. Be willing to do the hard things for God. Be discipled and learning. Spend time with God daily. Don't lose heart. And he's saying, this is following the servant. Obeying the voice of the servant. As Philippians 2.5, having the same mind in you as in Christ Jesus. We are called to copy this. Or, in verse 11, your other alternative. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. And just sort of blunt. If you try to live on your own light, do your own thing, plan your schedule of what satisfies you, Live as a king rather than a servant. Boy, that speaks to our society today. It's all about me. It's all about how I perceive things, how I want things, what that, how that affects me. And he says, that's your own torch, and you're going to burn yourself with your own fire. You will lie down in torment. How are we going to be? Are we going to make excuses and stay on the fringes of of God's family and His work? Are we going to dive in like the servant and follow His example? What a beautiful picture of Christ that is so much richer because we have the Gospels. Don't stop being the servant. Lord God, our Father, thank You for Your Son. Thank you for the servant who came to save us, but also to give us an example of how to be part of your kingdom. Lord, help us to have a mind in us that is the same mind as Christ Jesus, that we trust you, that we're willing to step out in faith for you, 
that we're willing to be part of your work, that we're willing to sacrifice for that and surrender our will to yours. Lord, help us to be a, a people of servants rather than a people of excuses. Thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.